Section 9 of The Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author, edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. Discourse 7. Of the Accusations and Accusers under the Emperors. Part 1. Section 1. The Pestulent Employment of These Men, Their Treachery and Encouragement. From law thus perverted, there arose encouragement, more than enough, for informers and accusers, and a plentiful harvest. A sort of men, says Tacitus, born for the destruction of mankind, and by no terrors or penalties ever sufficiently restrained. Yet by the emperor, such sons of perdition were sought out and invited by great rewards. Tiberius had the front to tell the Senate that these insects, enemies to law and liberty, were the guardians and defenders of the laws. They were his defenders, if he pleased, the champions of imperial violence and lust. But the pests of the public, dogs of prey, thirsting after the blood and fortunes of every worthy and every wealthy man, that prince, who does not punish informers, encourages them, said Domitian. But this he said in the beginning of his reign, while he yet retained the appearances of benevolence and humanity. Afterwards, when the disguise was taken off, and he followed the bent of his brutal nature, it was enough to ruin any man, if he were but charged to have done some deed, or spoke some word, no matter what, against the magistry of the prince. Men were then capitally arraigned, and the estates were seized of both the living and the dead, for any fault whatsoever, upon the credit of any accuser whatsoever, in inheritances, to which he could have no possible title or pretense upon earth, were usurped by him, if there was but one person, one informer, who could say that he heard the deceased declare Caesar to be his heir. The same pretense served Caligula. Nay, when people had out of fear named him amongst their heirs, he wondered at their impudence to keep him out of his share by living afterwards, and for that offence poisoned many such. In short, the chief and most frequent incidents in the reigns of almost all the Caesars were but the bloody efforts and success of the accusers, and the groundwork and support for all accusations was the perverted law of violated majesty, which came to signify everything which the accusers averred and the emperors disliked. In the beginning of Tiberius's reign, Lucius Piso, one of the boldest men then surviving, owned himself so much intimidated by the merciless pursuits of the impleaders, who breathed nothing but terror and accusation, that he threatened an open senate to relinquish Rome and retire into some distant corner of the earth. He had reason for his complaint and fears. He was afterwards marked out as a victim, and prayed by one of the tribe, and arraigned for certain works secretly dropped against the majesty of the prince. These accusations were no other or better than the cruel prescription continued. By the latter, senators and knights, patriots obnoxious to the usurpers, were butchered in the lump. Afterwards, under the process of the accusers, they perished piecemeal, but were incessantly perishing often a great many at a time. Every law of the old free state, and every man who loved his country and her laws, were repugnant to the reigning tyranny. Hence, as the republic was swallowed up in the sovereignty of the Caesars, all her laws were made to center in that of majesty, 
and all men who adhered, or were suspected to adhere to the ancient constitution, were either destroyed by this new law, rather an old law turned into a new snare, or at the mercy of its guardians and accusers. And all this new violence was committed under old names and constitutions, so that the commonwealth was made to cut her own throat, just as cruel and ambitious men justify persecution and oppression by the authority of the gospel which abhors it. The Church of Rome calls everything that depleases her heresy and blasphemy. This is the lex majestus of some churchmen, and by cruelties committed under that name they have more than vied with the Neros and the Domitians. Thus, after a solemn murder committed by the Senate, to gratify Tiberius he sent them a letter of thanks, for punishing a person who was an enemy to the commonwealth, as if the republic had been then subsisting and vindicating her own wrongs. The accusers were the agents and tools of tyranny, and by the tyrants upheld and animated with open countenance and high rewards. Their business was to hunt down and destroy every man signal for blood, or wealth, or dignity, or virtue, because all such men were obnoxious to imperial jealousy and displeasure. Had a noble Roman sustained public offices? He was a dangerous man. Had another refused to bear them? He was equally dangerous. And for public offices, either exercised or declined, he was sure to be attacked as a criminal of state. And if he were conspicuous for any notable ability or virtue, his doom was inevitable. Valerius Asiaticus perished because he had delightful gardens, which tempted the avidity of Massalina as did Statilius Taurus, for the same reason, by the avarice and subornation of Agrippina. So did Sextus Marius, for his immense wealth in gold mines under Tiberius. This gives one an idea of the terrible spirit of the emperors, as well as of the accusers, how much the former feared and hated, and how fast they destroyed everything that was noble, good, or amiable amongst men, and what a pestilent employment was that of an accuser. Was it any wonder that to carry on so detestable a trade they were to be tempted with lucrative earnings? In truth, their recompenses were so public and ample that they were detested not more for their iniquities than for the wages of their iniquities. These pests of Rome were, for being so, frequently raised to the highest offices in the Roman state, and that imperial city, the mistress of the earth, saw her public dignities those of the pontificate and of the consulship, bestowed as spoils upon parricides for spilling her best blood and tearing her vitals. With the prince their credit was high, as their merit was infamous. Some were preferred to be governors of the provinces, others taken to be his chief confidants and counselors in the palace, and thus, vested with credit and sway, exerting all their terrors and pursuing their hate, they controlled and confounded all things. After the tragical death of Libodrusus, procured by exorable artifices, falsehoods, horrors, and rested laws, all the substance of that noble patrician was divided amongst his accusers, and some of them, as were senators, were created praetors, even without the regular method of election. The four senators who had snared Titus Sabinus, by lurking, feigned friendship, and by a series of treachery, the most infamous and cruel that could be practiced amongst men, and afterwards accused him, engaged in all this meritorious villainy, purely to gain the consulship, 
to which there was no possible access but through Sejanus. Nor, without villainy, was the favor of Sejanus to be sought or purchased. But besides rewarding of the accusers out of the fortunes of the accused, for where they had not all, they still went shares with his children, they had frequently excessive sums out of the public treasury. Capito Cusutianus had near a hundred and thirty thousand crowns for accusing Thracia Petus. Epirus Marcellus had as much for the same good service, for Nero, after he had long wallowed in the blood of eminent men, and butchered them without number, was in the hopes, by the murder of Thracia and Serenus, to extirpate virtue, name, and essence from the face of the earth. Astorius Sabinus, the accuser of Serenus, had indeed a less reward in money, that of thirty thousand crowns, but the reward was enhanced by the ornaments of the quaestorship presented with it. These incendiaries were animated, and such crying calamities to the public were excited by the minions of the court, who, as it were, sounded the trumpet to arraignments and confiscations, on purpose, that out of the fortunes of the condemned they might raise or increase their own, says Amanianus Marcellinus. Achilles Regulus, an upstart and a mischievous accuser under Nero, was distinguished with two consulships, and the dignity of pontiff, and had premiums in money, to the value of more than two hundred thousand crowns, as if he had been bearing the commonwealth, and for this merit had afterwards gathered her spoils, says Tacitus. Section 2. The traitorous methods taken to circumvent and convict innocence. The spirit of accusing how common, the dread of it how universal, and the misery of the times. As upon these bloody occasions it was necessary to find or feign some crime, so any crime served the turn, as I have largely shown. Witnesses also must be had, but any witnesses were good witnesses, and where they did not offer themselves they were bought with money, or frightened with the torture. Slaves were suborned against the life of their lords, clients and freedmen against their patrons, and he who had no enemy was betrayed and undone by his friends. Now, because, by the old Roman laws, slaves could not be witnesses against their masters, the crafty Tiberius found a trick to evade that law without seeming to violate it. He contrived to have the slaves upon such occasions sold, and then they might be evidence against their late lord. This perfidious subtlety was begun by Augustus, as is largely shown by Dion Cassius. Nay, when a man had no other to accuse him, he was accused by his own son. Dreadful times! Even, all rewards and incitements apart, fear for themselves made men treacherous to others. Falsehood and cruelty reigned uncontrolled. If you would please the prince, you must gratify his bloody spirit. To do that, you must offer victims, and exercise the trade of accusing. If you were ill with him, no man, no innocence could protect you. And to be well with him, you must make all other men detest you. To make your own fortune, you must ruin that of others, and shed blood to get money. To this vile employment men of the highest quality descended, and those of the first note for eloquence and civil accomplishments. Such was Cata Massalinus, a man nobly born, but the foremost in every sanguinary motion. Such was Publius Dolabella, who sprang from ancestors the most illustrious, yet debased his nobility, engaged in the occupation of an accuser, even against those of his own blood. When men of such quality set such example, 
what wonder if numbers followed it? Many pursued it for money, others because they would not become obnoxious by appearing slack. The question was not about right or wrong, law or magistracy, but how to please and humor, to satiate the emperor, and to escape his suspicion and fury. It was the plea of the accusers afterwards, when they were brought to answer for their crimes, that they were obliged by the emperors, or their wives, to undertake and prosecute accusations. This Suilius pleaded, and urged the imperious orders of Messalina. Nay, men of figure were sometimes called upon by the emperor in person to undertake accusations. This, says Tacitus, was one of the most baneful and deadly evils of those times, that the first lords of the senate degraded themselves to the office of the vilest informers, some impudently in the face of the sun, others in the dark ways of treachery. No distinction of kindred from strangers, of friends from such as were unknown, none between things lately transacted and such as were covered by a course of years in oblivion, for words spoken in the forum, spoken at an entertainment, and about what subject soever spoken. The speaker was accused, every one hastening to be the foremost in the accusation, and to prevent his fellows, some for their own safety, many, as it were, struck with the contagion, and smitten with the disease of accusing. This universal treachery begot apprehension in all men equally universal. When villainy was thus rewarded, or thus necessary, and thus everywhere practiced by high and low, every man was fearful of finding every man a villain. Hence the mournful anguish and terror which seized the city. People were afraid to converse, nay, afraid to meet. They distrusted all alike, their acquaintances as well as the unknown. Even things mute and inanimate were dreaded, and roofs and walls created terror and circumspection. Nay, they were apprehensive that guilt might be found in these their apprehensions, and thus came to dread this very thing, that they had shown dread. Section 3. Plots, feigned or true, an ample field for accusations and cruelty, and upon what miserable evidence executions were decreed. But the best market for accusations, and the best opportunity for the emperor to exert tyranny and consume men, was the detection of any conspiracy, forged or real. How prodigious and merciless was the slaughter committed by Constantius after the death of Magnentius! and his bloody instrument Paulus, surnamed Catena, from his dexterity in calumny and accusations. Thus, too, upon the detection of the designs of Sejanus against Tiberius, who at one time, for a course of years, had destroyed every man that was obnoxious to this exorable favorite of his, and afterwards destroyed every man who had been well with his favorite. Thus, when those of Piso against Nero came to be discovered, the whole business of the state was that of accusing imprisoning and executing. Rome was dyed, deformed, and filled with blood, and death, and funerals, and as many as were hated, or disliked, or worth destroying upon any account, were sure to have been conspirators, and to be doomed to the pains annexed to conspiracy. Tiberius caused a general slaughter to be made of all that were in prison, under accusation of intelligence with Sejanus. Anything upon earth, the lightest, the most fortuitous and foolish thing, served for proof of such intelligence. Pomponius Secundus was arraigned of treason, for that there were some signs, but not shown by him neither, a friendship between him and Aetius Gallus, who was a friend to Sejanus, and who was a traitor. 
Gallus, upon the execution of Sejanus, had retired into the gardens of Pomponius. This was all, yet this was the doughty argument used by his accuser, for proving this worthy and accomplished man a traitor, one who had violated majesty. Yet his accuser, Considius, was a man considerable enough to have been praetor. It was thus, I supposed, he showed well how he deserved imperial favor, and one of the highest dignities of the state. The emperor Constantius was as cruel and as credulous. With him it was death to be accused, and every accusation, however doubtful or false or even whispered, was convincing proof of guilt. Nay, the least rumor, however groundless, the smallest hint, however spiteful, created treason and death without redemption, and by no better proof men of the first quality and merit were doomed to confiscation or banishment or execution. The barest saying that such a one was in the conspiracy, or a friend to the conspirators, was conviction in abundance for taking away estates and lives. Nero, whose chief and only purpose was to afflict and destroy, created guilt wheresoever he found distaste. His own hatred or fear was crime enough, and reason sufficient to destroy the object. Some were sacrificed without being once accused or named, some punished ere they knew that they were accused, and the least defamation was full conviction. Nothing was more common than to charge any great man, doomed beforehand to destruction, with designs against the state. This was the charge upon Libodrusus. All the guilt that could be proved upon him, though to prove it, and indeed to create it, the most villainous arts were used, was that he had consulted the fortune-tellers and dealt in charms. This was conspiring against the state. It was treason. And because the Romans were much addicted to such sort of superstition, this became a very convenient treason, and very fertile. Yet Tiberius himself was, as much as any, addicted to astrology. In the accusations, particularly against great ladies who, for blood, or wealth, or beauty, merited imperial wrath, it was a constant article that they had dealt with the Chaldeans, or practiced the rites of magic. For this many great ladies were doomed to death. Section 4. What ridiculous causes produced capital guilt? The spirit of the Emperor Constantius, with somewhat of his father Constantine. This humor of consulting the astrologers, still increasing with superstition and tyranny, administered an inexhaustible fund of crimes and accusations. The noise of a mouse in a wall, or the sight of a weasel, became matters of omen and consultation, and consequently matters of treason and blood. So did the use of an old woman's charm for aches. So did the counting the vowels upon one's fingers, as a remedy against the colic. So did the wearing of an amulet for an augur. So did the casual dropping of any word or joke that bore any analogy to the empire, or the emperor's name, or to any matter of state and power. So did the frequenting of sepulchres, and carrying away the bones or habiliments of the dead. So did any dream dreamt about any such subject, or construed to be so dreamed. Under Constantius there was one Mercurius, a Persian, who was a favorite of the emperor, and a spy for dreams, insomuch that he had the title of Somniorum comes. This blessed instrument, a fellow of a malicious spirit and fawning behavior, used to creep into all companies and banquets, to fish out dreams from particulars, and whatever there he learned of this kind, after he had, with all his invention, dressed it up in ugly and formidable colors, he carried instantly to the emperor, 
whose ears were ever opened wide to such mischievous infusions. And this dreaming, thus represented, was a crime to be expiated only by the blood of the criminal, I should say dreamer, and so a terrible process was formed. This terror spread so much that people, far from telling their dreams, durst scarce own that they slept, nay, it was lamented by some that they had not been born upon Mount Atlas, where, according to tradition, people never dream. To complain, too, of the badness of the times was high treason, for this was arraigning the government and punished capitally. But death itself, however unjust, was not always the most formidable woe. The accused were often not allowed the benefit of death, till they were first barbarously racked and mangled by torture, and to gratify the inhuman vengeance of the prince, their agonies were continued as long as life could continue under them. This is testified by Ammianus Marcellinus of Constantius, the second Christian emperor, more cruel than Nero and Caligula, a consideration which confirms what I have said before, that where government is bad, even the best religion can do little good. Constantius was a Christian, and even zealous in church matters and religious disputes, and by fostering them did miserably afflict Christianity and the empire. But he was so far from being improved or bettered by this zeal, that the most cruel tyrants that went before him, such monsters as Caligula, Domitian, and Commodus, were but babes to him in cruelty. I wish much better things could be boasted of his father, the first emperor who embraced Christianity, and styled Constantine the Great. All the princes, even the persecuting princes who went before him, hurt not religion so much as he did, by blending it unnaturally with politics and power, by laying the foundations of a spiritual tyranny, and enabling the bishop of Rome, and other great prelates, to exert the domineering spirit, which before they had but ill-concealed, a spirit which has almost extinguished that of the gospel. In his civil administration he was rapacious, profuse, and oppressive, and in his family barbarous and sanguinary. However, his partial and flattering historian Eusebius has extolled him, and concealed the iniquities of his reign. But, in barbarity and the excesses of power, his son and successor Constantius exceeded him. What just reason had Ammianus to say that under the lying pretense of guarding imperial majesty, numerous and horrible were the butcheries then committed? Section 5. The Black and General Carnage under Constantius by his bloody minister Paulus Catena, for certain acts of superstition and curiosity. Constantius surrendered at one time a great part of the Roman world to the merciless hands of accusers, torturers, and executioners, and certain causes, in themselves frivolous and contemptible, but magnified with the swelling imputation of majesty violated, produced all the uproar and calamity attending a great civil war. The trumpet sounded to try and slay. An Egyptian deity named Bessa was noted for uttering oracles and telling fortunes, and thence much frequented, adored, and consulted by all the countries round about. As many consulted him in person, others did it in writing. This occasioned that several of the billets thus sent continued in the temple after the answer was returned. Some of these were maliciously transmitted to the emperor, a prince of poor spirit, suspicious and bitter. He now waxed fierce and wrathful, and instantly dispatched his exorable instrument, Paulus Contena, into the east, armed with powers equal to those given to some famous captain for carrying on a mighty war. Paulus was authorized to hear, and determined discretionally, 
and proceeded to his charge, breathing nothing but rage and bloody zeal. Universal accusation and calumny being thus licensed and encouraged, numbers of all degrees were dragged from far and near, as it were, out of the several quarters of the world, to this barbarous tribunal, and exposed to the mercy of a butcher, who only pursued blood and prey. Some came with their joints excoriated with fetters, others crushed and spent in carts made for carrying criminals. No distinction made between the noble and the vulgar. The process was long and tragical. In short, confiscations, exiles, tortures worse than death, death under tedious torments, and every evil painful or destructive to human nature was there exerted and suffered. As for Paulus, the lives and fortunes and fate of multitudes depended on his nod, a man skilled in the arts of cruelty, and openly professing them, a savage who made a market of the rack and wheel, one fed, as it were, with human carcasses mangled, and enriched with butchery and rapine, a fellow who avowed the trade of accusing and killing, and studied to ensnare and devour innocence, lives, and property. This was the man, in high favor and trust under the pious Constantius. It will be a relief to the reader to know that this monster, bloated with blood and crimes, was burnt alive under Julian, a prince of very different parts and spirit. Section 6. The ravages of the accusers continued, their credit with the emperors, yet generally meet their fate, the falsehood of these princes, the melancholy state of those times. The reigns of the following princes, Constantius, Constans, Gallus, Valentinian, Valens, were spent in a continual war upon their people, under color of their majesties being violated. Crying and tragical were the ravages committed at Rome by that bloody man, Maximinus, where, under pretense of majesty violated, poisonings and acts of lewdness, some few real, more imputed, were used as a stale for killing, torturing, and destroying. Every man or woman that was obnoxious to him or the accusers was put to death, and a private malice or rapaciousness a sea of Roman blood was spilt. I think it was this Maximinus who persuaded certain persons accused to confess and discover others. In that case, promised that they should undergo no punishment, either by sword or fire. They did so, trusting to his faith, and confessed crimes never committed. He then, for a salvo, doomed them to die under leaden hammers. He was executed himself under Gratian. Against the defense of innocence accused, against the most evident truth and justice, and all honest information, the ears of the emperor were eternally shut. But calumny whispered by any malignant had equal weight with real crimes proved by authentic witnesses, says Ammianus. Falsehood and flattery, envy and rapaciousness passed for evidence, Justice was converted into cruelty, and judgment into rage. The tribunals erected for justice, and preservation of life and property, were become shambles, and what had names of pains and penalties, was in truth robbery and assassination. As there was never any lack of accusers, there was none of criminals in the accused, and more they were destroyed, the faster they multiplied, like witches in former days, daily executed and daily increasing, they were the food and revenue of the accusers, who, while they could speak and lie, could never want occupation or wages, as long as they were tyrants and men. Marcellus was charged with having uttered disaffected words concerning Tiberius, 
and the accuser collected every thing which was detestable in the manners of that prince, alleged the same as the imputations of the accused, a large field for accusations, and well cultivated by the accusers. You could say nothing of these emperors that was true, but what was treason. Such bloody monsters were they all, the worst you could have said being actually true. You were easily believed to have actually said it. What a blessed lot it must have been to have lived in these reigns, under monsters unchanged, and rogues let loose, when virtue and property were prescribed, villains caressed and guarded. The persons of accusers came to be considered as sacred and inviolable. The more they were detested by the public, the more they were protected by the emperor, and in proportion as they merited death and ignominy, had countenance and preferment. Their vilest forgeries, convicted and owned against the lives and fortunes of the greatest men, drew down no doom or penalty upon them. The crimes charged upon Fonteus, late proconsul of Asia by Serenus, were proved to have been by him forged, yet he escaped punishment. Nay, the more the man was abhorred by all men, the more Tiberius considered and protected him. This Serenus was a villain of exalted merit. He had falsely accused his own father of treason, an old man and already in exile. But Tiberius owed him a spite, and the son studied to oblige Tiberius, who had been offended with the elder Serenus for once upbraiding him with some wicked service unrewarded nor had an interval of eight years pacified the prince. Yet it generally so happened that their reign was but temporary. First or last, most of them found the genuine wages of their fraud and iniquity, and suffered the same doom which they had made others suffer, a doom much more bitter as it was just, accompanied also with the universal hatred of their persons, and with a guilty and upbraiding conscience. This was the fate of Suilius, Cassius Severus, and others. Now, it was the custom to find high treason in harmless words, impertinent vanities, and even in ridiculous follies, deserving rather pity than punishment, such as were those charged upon Libo. So it was the purpose and policy of the emperor never to prevent any guilt of this kind. On the contrary, he was glad of guilt, and when he knew it was begun, let it run on till it was ripe, and evidence and accusers were ready. Tiberius knew that Libo dealt with the astrologers, with everything done or said by him. Yet in no time had he caressed Libo more than at the time when he was meditating his destruction. He preferred him to the praetorship. He entertained him at his table, showed no strangeness in his countenance, no resentment in his words. So deeply had he smothered his vengeance. And when he might have restrained all the dangerous speeches and practices of Libo, he chose rather to permit them in order to punish him for them. The crafty tyrant, did not only lull asleep his destined victim by these excessive civilities, but meant by them to deceive the world, as if Libo's crimes were a surprise upon him, at a juncture when he would seem to have meant all kindness to Libo. But he was mistaken, and his dissimulation only served to heighten the opinion of his malice. For craft discovered is worse than folly, as folly never creates hatred. Cunning is only then complete, when it cannot be detected, which seldom happens. Nero caressed and flattered Seneca, while he was devising all methods to destroy him. When he meant to murder his mother, never was there such a scene of false fondness as that which he played. He was formed by nature, says Tacitus, and by habit nurtured, to hide his hate under insidious blandishments. Domitian used to treat, with the utmost good humor and tenderness, such as he intended to murder.
nor was there any warning or interval between his caressing you and delivering you to the executioner, nor a more certain sign that a tragical doom awaited you than the prince's gentle behavior towards you. Well might Suetonius say that his cruelty was not only excessive, but sly and instantaneous. Now, under such a torrent of accusations, under laws perverted, informers busy, employed, protected, and rewarded, when all things were crimes, and all men were feared, nay, when fear itself was a crime, for when Caligula murdered his brother, he gave it for a reason that the youth was afraid of being murdered, when servants and neighbors, nay, acquaintance and kindred, when all justified to be suspected, we need not admire that all offices of friendship and compassion were suspended amongst men, and compassion itself, as it were, extinguished. When Libo Drusus, so often already mentioned, upon his arraignment for treason, went into mourning from house to house to solicit the interposition of his relatives, as all the great families in Rome were so, and to pray their aid, when his life and all was at stake, they all declined it to a man, each alleging a reason of his own, but every one in reality from the same cause, namely the fear of the emperor. People must not only show no sorrow or sympathy for their murdered relations, but they must testify joy, unless they had a mind to be murdered themselves. As under Nero, many, those nearest relations, having been murdered by him, repaired to the temples with thanksgiving and offerings, and when the city was filled with corpses, so was the capital with victims. In that mighty carnage made by Tiberius of the friends and followers of Sejanus at once, when the pavements were covered with single carcasses, or filled with carcasses and piles, those of every age, many that were noble, many that were mean, all cast abroad promiscuously, neither their acquaintance nor kindred were allowed to approach them, or to bewail them, or even at last to behold them. About the corpses spies were placed, to watch countenances, and the signs of sorrow, and when, after they became putrefied and noisome, they were thrown into the Tiber, whether they floated in the stream, or were cast upon the banks, none would touch them, none durst bury or burn them. The force of fear had cut off all the commerce and offices of humanity, and the more tyranny raged, the more human compassion was extinguished. Even the outrageous Caligula had so well learned to hide his heart, that when the cruelty of Tiberius, his mother and both his brothers were condemned in banishment. Even the outrageous Caligula had so well learned to hide his heart, that when, by the cruelty of Tiberius, his mother and both his brothers were condemned and banished, not a word escaped him, nor groan, though all arts were used to draw words and resentment from him. Octavia, too, the wife of Nero, when her little innocent brother was murdered before her face, by the direction of the tyrant, her husband, had even then learned, young though she was, to smother all symptoms of tenderness and sorrow, and every affection of the soul. Nay, Agrippina, with all her courage and high spirit, labored to hide her surprise and dread, and every other emotion upon that occasion. Section 7. The Increase of Tyranny. Innocence and guilt not measured by the law, but by the emperor's pleasure and malice. One would think that tyranny had by this time gone as far as it could go, and that after this human cruelty and terrors could be strained no higher. But this is a mistake. Flatterers and accusers were ingenious villains, and tyranny is a monster never glutted. It is still craving for new butchery and victims. Its purveyors, therefore, are ever studying to humor and to pamper it. 
Who could have imagined anything upon earth more intensely cruel than Tiberius? Yet his successors exceeded him, one and another in cruelties, for number and quality, and Domitian committed such as had escaped even the preceding monsters. Hence, Tacitus says, As our forefathers have seen the ultimate point and the last efforts of public liberty, it was reserved to us of this generation to behold the utmost weight and severity of public bondage, since, by the terrors of state inquisitors, we are even bereft by the common intercourse of civil life, that of discoursing ourselves and of listening to the discourse of others. He adds, We should have also lost the use of memory, as well as the habit of speaking, had it been equally in our power to forget as to be silent. The trial of persons for treason went on generally in the old form, but in effect all was resolvable upon the breast and good pleasure of the prince. According to hints from him, persons were condemned or acquitted, sometimes by his interposing the tribunicial power. They were not admitted to be accused. Sometimes treason was found in one man's words and actions, which in another were not allowed to be criminal. Thus men were sentenced or absolved, or not accused, not according to their guilt or innocence, but to their degree of grace or dislike with the emperor, who had the prerogative to coin guilt and innocence, and to invert one into the other as he pleased. Thus Tiberius pursued Vestilius to death, his brother's ancient friend, and his own, for suspicion of having lampooned his nephew Caligula, but would not allow Cata Messalinus to be a criminal for the same offense and for many more. But Cata had merit, he was always foremost in every bloody council. All his wickedness and crimes were so many services, and so much merit. In those days there was no sure guilt, but that of worth and of virtue and innocence. Hence the security of all men egregiously mischievous. The known cruelty of the prince was no terror to those who took care to escape it, by the vileness of their lives, especially if they were active to feed his cruelty by noble sacrifices, like Heterius Agrippa, who meditated in the midst of his cups and harlots the destruction of illustrious men. The worst and vilest men in the empire became the securest and often the highest by destroying the best. End of Discourse 7, Part 1